May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth, O Lord, be holy, acceptable, and pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Christ is risen. The tomb, hallelujah, hallelujah. The tomb is empty. Death has been defeated. Victory in Jesus. Amen. And nothing in all of creation will ever be the same, right? Right? Welcome to the week after. The week after a glorious celebration of singing hymns and dancing, baptisms and hallelujahs. The week after sharing food and drink. The week after feasting with friends and family. The week after triumph. Low Sunday. A week full of business as usual, right? I mean, we're back to work, we're back to study, school and chores, back to our daily routines, back to the news, back to the same patterns and habits that make up our lives, for better or worse. A week ago, we proclaimed, and we still proclaim, that Christ is risen indeed, that there is triumph over sin and death, Yet a week on, people are still dying. Sin is just as prevalent in my life, in our lives, in the world as before Easter Sunday. And in some way, there is a huge gap between the Easter proclamation of joy and the felt reality of grief, shame and guilt, chaos and war, loss and loneliness, and for some, hopelessness uncertainty, for the disciples, fear and doubt. Welcome to the week after. Though it probably didn't take a full week to realize this, did it? I mean, like the disciples in our gospel lesson, the day after was the beginning of a new season of life in a world with an empty tomb and a risen Christ And this new reality, though difficult to comprehend, has implications for anyone who would call themselves a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. And this is the point in our liturgical year, in our life together, where we take a good look the week after, a hard look at God's post-resurrection world. And we think, now what? And if we're honest, so what? And these questions are exactly what the Gospel of John addresses in our Gospel lesson this morning in John 20, verses 19 through 31. So I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. John 20, verse 19. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace, peace be with you. So much had happened from sunrise to evening on that day to turn the world over and over Again, 
The day began, you'll remember, with an empty tomb, with heavenly messengers and the news that the man the disciples had watched hang on a cross. The man whose dead body they had laid in a tomb was now in that same body, walking and talking to their friend, Mary. And upon hearing Mary's report, we discover that a couple of disciples raced to the tomb only to discover what? The linen that wrapped the body of Jesus. But as Mary said, no body. After searching the tomb over and trying to make sense of what was happening to Jesus, they returned home. They returned to their homes. And although Mary and Peter and an unnamed disciple whom Jesus loved had seen for themselves the empty tomb and Mary had actually encountered the risen Christ, what do we find that evening? We find the disciples hiding out behind locked doors in a room filled with fear and uncertainty. But Thomas is not present. I wonder what it was like for the disciples on that night. Disillusioned, a lack of understanding about the meaning of Jesus' death, accompanied by dashed hopes, maybe intense feelings of amazement and belief by report of the empty tomb, yet held in tension with unconfirmed rumors of the resurrection and unbelief. Now what? Not much has changed. The disciples are fearful, and this is important. For the disciples, good news does not erase their genuine fear. This is important. I believe that John intentionally places us here in moments of fear and uncertainty. It's as if John wants us to acknowledge that maybe hearing about an empty tomb isn't enough to confirm all that Jesus promised is true. So if not an empty tomb, then what does the resurrection mean? It means God still shows up in flesh, fully alive in the risen Christ. Here, John continues to do what he's been doing throughout the entirety of his gospel. He is rehearsing the story of God as it witnesses to Jesus Christ. And like God finding Adam and Eve hiding behind trees, the disciples are found hiding behind closed doors, perplexed by the knowledge that they have. So for the disciples, then in the past, the resurrection means that God is still with us. Jesus draws near. He came and he stood among them and he offers peace. There was no doubt it was Jesus. Jesus shows them his hands and his side so that they can see that it is he, the real flesh and blood, crucified but risen Jesus. This was not a ghost or an apparition, apparition who was before them. This is Jesus of Nazareth. 
just some food for thought, what, what do you make of this fact that the body of the risen Lord still carries the marks of lived experience? What implications might Jesus' resurrected body, scars and all, have for us in light of our assumptions about our bodies or what our bodies will be like after death? I wonder. I mean, certainly from a practical, even a doctrinal perspective, John is emphasizing that Jesus was really human and that his body was essential to who he was, who he is and who he will be for all of eternity. That this risen Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. And in recognizing the scars from the wounds in his hands and his side, the disciples respond by rejoicing and seeing their Lord just as Jesus had told them they would. Therefore, you now have sorrow, Jesus said in John 16, 22, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. Amazed and ashamed, afraid, the risen Christ breaks into their hidden place and offers them peace that they greatly were in need of, a peace that passes all understanding. And with the same breath that he gave to all of creation, the breath of life in Genesis 1, Jesus breathes into his disciples new life of the Holy Spirit, which produces a defiant hope that there is no hell from which resurrection is impossible, and that despite every disappointment, God is still able to redeem. All was coming to fulfillment. In John 15, Jesus assured them that he would give them an advocate, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father. And in John 17, Jesus promised them he would bring them comfort and joy. And the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit so that they would become messengers of the good news of what God has done in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And they were to proclaim God's love for the entire world. Strengthened by the Holy Spirit, they were to fling open those locked doors of fear. And so the disciples are sent, as we see in John 20, to continue Jesus' mission of revealing God to this world, and they will not be left on their own. So for the disciples, resurrection means that God is still with us. Jesus then tells his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So just a side note here, it's important to know that sin in John's gospel is not primarily a moral category. Rather, it is unbelief. It's the refusal to receive the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is not giving Dan or Alan or I or his disciples then or in the future some magical power to decide whose sins will be forgiven and whose sins will not be forgiven. Instead, Jesus is describing what it means to be sent. 
to make known the love of God that Jesus himself has made known to the world. So as people come to know and abide in Jesus, they will be released from their sins. However, if those who are sent by Jesus, if we fail to bear witness, people will remain stuck in their unbelief. Their sins will be retained or held onto. And so our participation in the mission of God, it's a zero-sum game. The stakes are high, but be assured that God is still with us. That was good news. That was good news for everyone who was there in the room, but not everyone was there in the room. This brings us to Thomas as we continue. But Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my, my hand in his side, I will not believe. So Thomas, he's commonly known as Doubting Thomas, or the skeptic, or the cynic, or the holdout. His reluctance to accept the testimony of his fellow disciples, his insistence on physical proof, his late arrival to the joyous belief of his peers, all of these are often described as spiritual flaws, as signs of stubbornness, or cynicism, or of a weak faith. But weakness is not what I see in Thomas. Thomas yearned for a living encounter with Jesus. He was unwilling to settle for someone else's experience of the resurrection. He stuck around in hope of having his own, and he actually had the courage to admit his uncertainty in the midst of those who were certain. In fact, he had to wait in that uncertainty for an entire week after his friends first told him that they had seen Jesus. And one of the things that stand out to me most about Thomas's story is not that he doubted per se, but that he did so publicly. Without shame and without guilt. And that his faith community allowed him to do so. This is something I believe the church would do well to reconsider in great depth. How do we become a community that removes shame and guilt about doubt? How do we create spaces for those who fear or have feelings of uncertainty, for those who have legitimate questions about faith or even a lack of conviction? This is one thing I really appreciate about Nathan Hedman. He's been walking alongside my son in this season of his life. Um, Elisha, he's been going through confirmation classes with his peers, and he's had a lot of really good questions. 
Nathan doesn't browbeat Elisha when he asks questions. He says things like, I'm so glad that you asked that question because it means that you're really thinking about this. And then he encourages more questions and more faith wrestling, which has produced what I believe and his mother believes is a more enduring faith rooted in communal discernment, a stronger and healthier faith that's willing to admit uncertainty in need of others' input. Who can you go with your doubts to? Who can you go to with questions? Now, Nathan is taken, right? <laughs> you know, another thing that stands out to me about Thomas's story is that he asked for nothing more than the others have already received. To see Jesus, wounds and all. All Thomas desires is what the disciples saw and experienced. And the wonder of this moment is Jesus' willingness to meet Thomas exactly where Thomas names he needs meeting. Thomas names what Jesus knew his disciples needed. The doors are shut, but they're not locked this time. And Jesus appears, nail scars and all. His offering of peace is followed by a demonstration of forgiveness. There's no condemnation for Thomas's request. There's a simple invitation. Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Immediately recognizing his Lord and woundedness, Thomas responds with a confession unlike any other in the gospel. My Lord and my God. Thomas's response is one of praise. It's not simply a doctrinal confession, but a confession of trust and relationship. Now, I've read the story numerous times, and for the first time, I noticed something that I missed before. And I want you to see it too. John doesn't tell us that Thomas ever touched the wounds. It's as if John is intentionally leaving us to wonder once, maybe just once Thomas got a look at and felt the presence of his Lord, perhaps he forgot all of his conditions. Perhaps the only response that was appropriate was to confess Jesus as Lord and as God, my Lord and my God. For Thomas, the resurrection means that the risen Christ is Lord and is God and is still with us. There is no doubt that Jesus' willingness to meet Thomas exactly where Thomas names he needs meeting was grace. It was grace to Thomas, and it was grace to the disciples. 
And to say that it was anything other than grace would be an understatement. But you know what Jesus says to Thomas? He continues by saying, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus' response to Thomas is not a rebuke. It's a blessing. It's a blessing for all those who will come to believe without having had the benefit of an actual flesh and blood encounter with the risen Christ. In fact, John goes on to declare that this is the very purpose of his gospel, addressing all of us, you and I in this room, who have not seen, but have heard this testimony. Jesus says, but these, or John says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. This is the whole crux of the entire gospel of John, from John 1 in the beginning to the end, because belief equals life. This, of course, includes you and me. Yep, this is the point in the story where we are drawn into its scope. It's the point where we, the readers, observers on the outside, are included in the story and addressed by Christ himself. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So what does the resurrection mean for you and I? who have not seen yet believe? And what does the resurrection mean for you and I who have not seen and struggled to believe? It means that you are blessed and that God is still with us. Whether you are amazed and believe or are afraid and have questions, what we discover in our gospel lesson today is that the risen Christ, God in flesh, fully alive, is the light that shines into the darkness of our lives, and that darkness cannot overcome it. The resurrection means that you are blessed, and that God is still with you and I. Like Thomas, the wonder of this moment is that the risen Christ who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, remains willing to meet you and I exactly where we need him most. If you could name the place where you need Jesus to meet you, where would it be? I encourage you to take advantage of our prayer team later in the service. They are some of the most trusted people I know in this church. They are a safe place where you can name your needs and your doubts and your uncertainties, and they will pray for you and with you. They will stand and sit in silence. They will rejoice with you, and they will mourn with you. The resurrection means that you are blessed and that God is still with us. 
But you might be thinking, how is it that we who have not seen and yet believe are blessed? It is in and through new life in the risen Christ, God in flesh, fully alive, who is still with us, who offers us a hope against all hopes, a hope that there is no hell from which resurrection is impossible, and that despite every disappointment and uncertainty and fear, God is able to redeem. And we are blessed because look around you. Look. Literally, look to your left and your right. Look around you. It's people like you that God, in and through his Son, the risen Christ, has gifted each and every one of us. We are a community of believers, living witnesses that resurrection is at work in our messy lives. We are blessed to be a part of such a great cloud of witnesses. For we are the fruit of these first disciples' witness. They received the life of the risen Christ, life that gave life that gave life. And in so many ways, they shared that life, which was shared on and on. And this is the same life that is on offer to you and I this day. So my prayer is that may we receive this life and give this life as we continue in the life and mission of the risen and ascended Christ. May we bear witness to the hope of the resurrection, which I believe is what allows all these things. May God do this work in you and I. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I invite you to stand as we profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God.